Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As hurricane season rolls along, meteorologists, emergency managers, and just plain weather geeks will turn to tropicaltidbits.com for an in-depth information on hurricane season. Tropicaltidbits.com is arguably one of the most widely used meteorological websites in the world. This week on Weather Geeks, we're joined by a familiar voice, creator and founder of TropicalTidbits.com, Levi Cowan. Levi, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this this is such an honor for me because uh, I am a, an avid user of TropicalTidbits.com. I follow on all the social media platforms. If you are not a follower, if you are not aware of this website, immediately go to it, bookmark it and do whatever. Yeah, because it, it is one of the most authoritative sources on tropical weather. And as we're taping this, it's September 11th. And first of all, I want to take a moment of pause just to reflect on uh, September 11th as we're taping this. But the other reason I want to think about September 11th is it's almost the statistical peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. Levi, talk about just how active we are this season so far and and where we put that in the sort of climatological record so far in terms of ACE and activity. Well, it was a bit of a slow start there. In terms of raw storm count, we really didn't start picking up until a few weeks ago. Uh, But as is typical, June and July aren't necessarily good indicators of how the rest of the season goes. And so it's not too surprising to see some more activity now as we get into August and September, which is the heart of the activity uh, period for the Atlantic each year in most cases. And uh, obviously we had Hurricane Dorian, our first uh, really big storm that contributed a lot of what we call ACE, a measure of overall storm intensity and activity. Uh, to the season total, and we are up to about seven storms, I believe. Long-term average is 11 or 12 since the 1990s, and uh, we have plenty of time to get to at least an average number of storms before the season ends. And, and as I said, as we're taping this on September 11, 2019, we are watching something in the uh, Gulf, right? I'm sorry, in the Caribbean right now or Atlantic, which may affect South Florida and then get into the Gulf. Any updates on that storm, even though I don't know exactly when this will air, but give us your thoughts on this next storm. Sure. As you said, as of today, it's in the Bahamas, a little tropical wave moving toward Florida, likely to bring rain to the region. Uh, Some models have it getting into the Gulf of Mexico or sliding up the Florida Peninsula and having potential to develop a little bit moving toward the Gulf Coast. And uh, we'll have to watch it, but it's going to be entangled with an upper level low, and that will likely limit development at least for a while. Uh, We'll have to see how much time it gets over water before it moves inland. Yeah, I was actually kind of peeking at the models before we came into tape today. And it it seems that the European model and the GFS, I think the Europeans a bit more bullish on development right now, at least in the GFS. Is that your read as well? 
In the most recent run, as of the night of September 10th, yes, that's true. Yeah. So you know, as I as I scan the 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 satellite imagery, I see several other systems lined up there in the tropics. Uh, this is the Cape Verde season, what we call the Cape Verde season. Explain to the Weather Geeks listeners what we mean when we talk about the Cape Verde season for Atlantic hurricane season. Sure. Well, Cape Verde refers to the set of islands just off of the west coast of Africa, and that region sees tropical waves that develop over Africa and move westward out over the Atlantic waters. And that typically happens most uh, strongly and farthest north during the months of August and September. And August and September is the time during which these waves are most likely to develop into tropical cyclones over the Atlantic. And so we refer to that as a so-called Cape Verde season. And most of the major hurricanes in the Atlantic that form come from these waves, over 80% of them. So they're typically the seedlings that we watch most closely during the peak time of the season. We're talking with Levi Cowan, who is the creator and founder of the TropicalTidbits.com weather uh, site. It is a site that many of us as meteorologists and weather geeks and weather enthusiasts use, uh, particularly at this time of year. But I want to kind of step back now. We're going to dive all into hurricanes throughout this podcast. But I want to give the listeners a chance to learn a bit about you. I know you're a doctoral student at uh, my alma mater, Florida State University. Tell us a little bit about yourself in your background? Sure. Well, I've known I've wanted to uh, work in the field of meteorology for some time, probably since about the age of eight. And uh, we don't have a meteorology program in Alaska where I'm originally from. So I was limited to snowstorms for some time there. But I did uh, my alma mater was at University of Alaska Fairbanks. I got a degree in physics, which prepared me quite well for meteorology, in fact. And then I came to Florida State University for Uh, a PhD program, and I'm currently studying how flow in the upper troposphere interacts with hurricanes and how that can modulate hurricane intensity in the Atlantic Basin. And that's the focus of my work right now. I work with Dr. Bob Hart here at FSU. Bob Hart is one of the top tropical meteorologists and professors in our field. And I just find it fascinating that being from Alaska, uh, you are now considered one of the, the, the best and young and up and coming tropical meteorologists. Just how does that happen? I mean, I, I, I also went to Florida State because I had a keen interest in um, tropical weather. I did my master's work on some of the first generation uh, radar algorithms to track landfalling hurricanes. I uh, went a different direction from my doctor work, but how in the world does an Alaskan, native Alaskan, just become this tropical weather expert? I recognize the irony for sure. Uh, We don't get direct impacts from tropical cyclones in Alaska except for transitioning typhoons into winter storms up there, but uh, I don't really have any one event for that reason that turned me on to tropical weather. I seem to recall seeing a lot of coverage of hurricanes on television, and the earliest memory I have of really keeping close tabs on things was the 2002 season when Hurricanes Isidore and Lily moved into the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico. And since that time, uh, I've been tracking the hurricane season rather closely. I'm not sure at exactly what point it became my focus, but I was very quickly enamored with the beauty and complexity and unpredictability of these storms. And that became my, my favorite aspect of meteorology rather quickly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, talking with Levi Cowan here on Weather Geeks podcast. Let's talk about Tropical Tidbits, uh, the website right now, because it's a 
complex and I imagine time consuming undertaking for someone. I've done a PhD, so I know how time consuming that is. And on top of that, you are running one of the most popular weather websites in the world. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create the Tropical Tidbits website. Sure. Well, I started to learn how to program in my undergrad years at UAF. And as a sophomore, I decided that I wanted to upgrade from what I had been doing, which was making satellite loops from some of the old satellite services division images that NOAA used to make for uh, tropical cyclone floater imagery. And I used to make loops for those uh, with uh, some scripting. And I decided I would like to host some of these products in a more real-time fashion so people can find them. And I was also an avid blogger on a site called Wonderground, which is now associated with the Weather Channel. And I uh, enjoyed writing uh, tropical cyclone updates for people and recording videos, and I wanted a place to host those. And I decided making my own website was probably a good way to approach that. It was a little funny at the time in my sophomore year. My roommate at the time swore that I would start trying to learn everything and give up because there's a lot that goes into web development. Uh, But I stuck with it and managed to create a site, launched it in 2012, and so it's about seven years old now. Do you have any statistics at all in terms of your your users or how many people are hitting your site in any given year or any given season? Well, it's it's continuing to grow year over year. Uh, I think last year I had over three and a half million unique people visit. um, And it's it's been it's been growing and and shocking me, quite honestly. Um, But a lot of people seem to enjoy some of the data that I provide and some of the videos that I publish. So that's been a really great thing to, to have happen. We're talking with Levi Cowan, founder and creator of Tropical Tidbits, but also a PhD student at the Florida State University in the Department of Ocean Atmosphere Sciences or whatever it's called these days. When I was there as the Department of Meteorology. So um, what are some of the products that you uh, have? Because there, there may be people that are listening to Weather Geeks that aren't familiar with your site. What, what kind of things can you find on your website? Well, I try to provide all sorts of basic tools for tropical analysis and forecasting, ranging from tools that amateurs can use to those that experts can make use of. My most popular tool set is that of numerical model data. Many listeners have probably heard of of, uh, reliable forecast models such as the GFS or the ECMWF or the so-called Euro. I provide data from those models and many others uh, that people can look at for forecast guidance. I provide observational data from surface observations, ocean data sets, uh, and satellite imagery from the new GOES-16, GOES-17 pairing that covers uh, North America and the Atlantic Basin. And uh, I I like to provide all the basics that people can use for forecasting. I can't provide everything because I don't quite have the time to to make everything work. But I I do my best. I enjoy plotting my own stuff and using tools that I prefer to use. And then if others prefer to use them as well, then that's a nice bonus. Uh, I find this site very useful. I'm teaching a satellite meteorology class right now at the University of Georgia. And I, I, in my weather briefings in that class, every time I have the class, I go to your uh, satellite imagery on your site. I I find it very useful and uh, very intuitive when we're monitoring certain storms. So I appreciate that. One of the things that I I think you really excel at also, uh, for those that are really weather geeks or weather enthusiasts, if there is an active hurricane or an active system out there, uh, you are also one of my go-to sites for real-time information for the hurricane hunters as they're flying in. Talk about that a little bit. 
Sure. I forgot to mention that as well. I have been plotting live data from the aircraft as they move through the storms for a couple of years now, and they they are still in the process of making those data streams a little more real time. They currently come in in 10-minute chunks, but when they show up on the National Hurricane Center website, I grab that data and make some visualizations. Others have done it before me in other software programs such as Google Earth, uh, but making them in an image format that can be shared on social media to to help inform people seems to have been a popular feature, and uh, I've really enjoyed having that data set available myself as well. And you also, you mentioned this, you do these video discussions as well. Why did you feel that it was important? I mean, you mentioned this a little bit, but tell us a little bit about why you felt it was important to have these video discussions. And uh, do you want to kind of go more into a broadcast part of the field or are you more inclined to head into the academic or federal sector in terms of your future employment? Sure. Uh, at the moment, I would prefer uh, an operational position uh, doing the actual analysis and forecasting of tropical cyclones or, or other things so more than broadcast. But I've certainly had a kind of a, a liking for communicating with people in this video audio format that I've been doing for many years now. As I said, I started as a blogger on Warnderground in 2005 and then quickly transitioned to a video format because I enjoy annotating uh, animated loops of data that I'm trying to show people. And speaking about that in a written format uh, is only so easy. And occasionally it's just too complex. And I'm sure people dislike reading paragraphs of text and deciphering images when I could just show them. And I think people enjoy listening to a 10-minute clip uh, telling them what's going on. And I think that doing that discussion in a slightly more complex way than most traditional media outlets is something people really enjoy. I feel that people being um, told all the different moving parts of a situation helps them understand the uncertainty in the forecasts that we make and the degree to which we're confident in impacts that we're telling the public are going to occur due to a landfalling storm. And I think giving them that context, even if they don't necessarily understand everything that goes into it, they learn a lot. And in that process, themselves uh, accrue more confidence in the forecasts that the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service are providing to them. And I think people have have received that well. The feedback I get suggests that people really enjoy a more detailed discussion of why things are happening the way we're telling them that they are. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Levi Cowan, the founder of the amazing website, tropicaltidbits.com. And he's on social media with that site as well. He's coming to us today from WFLA in Tallahassee. So thank the fine folks at that radio station for hosting Levi for the Weather Geeks podcast today. I want to stay right there with your website before we move on to more of an in-depth discussion on communicating some of these complex topics. 
I, I know you're a graduate student. I've been a graduate student. Uh, you need support. And I think you take support for your website. Is there a way that people can support you financially or otherwise to keep this amazing website going? There is. There's this wonderful platform called Patreon that I link to on my website where you can contribute uh, to the website and the fees that it takes to run the servers that support the products and uh, keep the website online. And uh, a lot of people have done that, and it's been extremely appreciated from my end. It's it's blown me away, quite honestly. Yeah, I, I think it. I, I wanted to make sure we got that in because I, I know I, I think that I've, I've certainly tried to do that as well because I use your site, and so it's just really amazing and invaluable. I want to shift the discussion. You kind of started it a little bit uh, in your last answer before the, the for the first break uh, with Hurricane Dorian and without getting into all the politics there, there were some flaps over the communication of uncertainty and where the storm was and was not going and whatnot. I, again, I don't want to get into the politics of that, but I do want to get into the importance of conveying the message properly, conveying uncertainty. And I want to get your thoughts also on information that's out there that like spaghetti plots or these sort of probability maps that if you don't consume them properly, can be misinterpreted. What, what are your thoughts on, on the types of things that we put out there that convey uncertainty for hurricanes? Is it useful? Can we do better, et cetera? Well, I certainly think there's room for improvement and we continue to learn more about communicating the potential for impacts. The problem is that there's so much information regarding uncertainty and a lot of information that's provided is incomplete. And I can, of course, be viewed as potentially part of the problem by providing spaghetti plots of model tracks without additional context, except in my video discussions in which I try to unpack things a little bit better for people. But the raw data without interpretation um, by those who know what they're doing can be dangerous in that people may make assumptions that can't be made, such as a spaghetti plot showing tracks over a region that may or may not be a reliable forecast or a depiction of the uncertainty in a certain forecast. We had this trouble with Hurricane Irma in 2017 very much with a lot of the traditional spaghetti plots showing tracks into eastern Florida when the true uncertainty included western Florida as well. But that didn't come through in the plots that many people were looking at. And uh, it's definitely a concern. We also had problems with both Irma and Dorian in terms of just coastline uh, geometry with Florida having storms coming up parallel to the coast. It becomes much more difficult to pinpoint the location of impacts compared to a storm that's coming in perpendicular to the coast, such as Michael from last year, which makes it you know easy. If you have a 50-mile error, a storm coming perpendicular to the coast, you have about a 50-mile uncertainty in where the impacts occur. But if it's coming in parallel to the Florida east or west coast, a 50-mile error could mean a 200-mile difference, say, in where the maximum impacts occur. And so that uncertainty grows a lot just based on what direction the storm is moving. And I think that's been one of our great challenges in recent storms. Let, let's geek out a little bit on a couple of things that you just talked about, some some things that we use to communicate hurricane information. So you mentioned the spaghetti plots. For listeners that may not know the intricacies, I, I, I think they can be useful, but I think they can be also very dangerous. Explain to people exactly what spaghetti plots are and, and what their sort of pros and cons are. Sure. And some people don't like the fact that they're called spaghetti plots, but they're called that because we have many different computer models that forecast the path of a storm and those paths are different. And so they form a cluster of strands or paths, potential paths of the storm that look like spaghetti strands. And so those show potentially where the storm can go. 
And the problem is you can show as many or as few models on those plots as you would like. And depending on which subset of models you pick to show, it may or may not encompass the envelope of potential possibilities. For example, a lot of the traditional spaghetti plots provided by the National Hurricane Center involve American-based model guidance, which is almost uh, universally based on the GFS, which is our primary global model here in the U.S., and that guidance will likely stick to what the GFS is showing roughly. Um, but if we look at other guidance from, say, Europe, the European Ensemble, for example, we might get a different picture of possibilities. And if you exclude one of those, then you may not get a full picture of what could occur. And it's very important for the public when we communicate forecasts to understand not only what is most likely, but also what is possible. And that can vary from situation to situation. Yeah, I agree. Talking with Levi Cowan of Tropical Tidbits, a graduate student also at Florida State University. What about the cone of uncertainty? I mean, I think the cone of uncertainty is also a very misunderstood concept for many in the public and frankly, among some meteorologists, too. Uh, It is not representing the uncertainty of the model spread that you just talked about with spaghetti plots. It's based on a sort of a historical accounting of error uh, over the past, I guess, I think five years or so. uh, Explain the hurricane cone of uncertainty to the listeners. Sure. Yeah, it is definitely a sometimes confusing construct. It simply represents the area within which the storm center passes about two thirds of the time based on historical average error. So that cone gets smaller over time as we get better. And it's just saying that One third of the time, the storm might pass outside the cone based on our normal error, but two thirds of the time it's within that cone, but it's just the storm center. And so we've had some communication problems in recent years with as the cone gets smaller, as we get better at forecasting over time, people start to think that if you're outside the cone, that you're safe. And that is often very untrue. We saw this again with Hurricane Irma, where, you know, the short term cone of uncertainty is small, but impacts well outside the cone affected southeast Florida, despite the eye being off western Florida. And so this has become sort of a confusing thing. And as you mentioned, it is not situation dependent. So it's just an average of history. It does not depict the uncertainty in a particular situation. A good example of this was Tropical Storm Debbie in 2012 which had two different possible tracks, one into Texas, one into Florida, and very little chance of going in the middle. And yet we can only give one forecast cone. And so those graphics didn't depict both possibilities because we were limited by the way in which we're currently doing things. And so having a potentially better way of explaining the uncertainty for a particular situation uh, might be helpful in the future. Yeah, I agree. And I, 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 one of the things with Irma, I remembered is that at one point I saw people evacuating from one part of the cone in Florida to another part of the cone in Florida. And so it's, it's important to really convey what that cone actually means and doesn't mean for that example. One more thing I want to geek out on since we have uh, Levi Cowan, uh, who I consider one of the best young tropical experts uh, in, in this business. And I'm glad to be talking with him today. What are your thoughts on the Sapphire Simpson scale? Uh, there was a lot of discussion about it after Hurricane Florence because it doesn't really convey information on the rainfall threat. What are your thoughts on how we convey the impacts of storms since Sapphire Simpson really focuses on wind? Well, it's certainly important 
for us as a field to communicate that water is a more life-threatening problem than wind. Uh, this, the unfortunate truth is that wind is baked into the public consciousness as the tangible, visible impact of a hurricane. Most of the footage we get focuses on winds and uh, violent situations involving wind. Uh, and it's understandable that people focus on that impact. I think the best that we can probably do when talking about potential impacts is to continue emphasizing the flooding problem. And I think people understand that given some of the recent flooding events we've had, they affect enough people. Word spreads about don't don't uh, don't think the flooding isn't a problem, even if you're not in the wind zone. So I think. People do remember and storm surge events on the coast and inland flooding from Florence and things like Harvey are definitely going to keep people tuning in to the impacts of water as we go forward. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Levi Cowan of TropicalTidbits.com. Run to that website if you're not familiar with it and bookmark it. Follow him in social media as well. You will not regret it if you just want to stay up to date on what's going on with the hurricane season and also just get some really good meteorological information. I want to now pivot to the current hurricane season. We've discussed Dorian a little bit already. Uh, What stood out to you most about Dorian as a storm? Anything that really surprised you from a storm perspective or a forecast perspective with Dorian? Uh, Dorian, I know a lot of people are talking about how it stalled in the Bahamas, but uh, what are are some things, including or maybe including that, that, that really stood out to you? Well, I thought potentially one of the more surprising moments from the storm is actually much earlier in its life when it entered the Eastern Caribbean. And what really set the uh, disastrous path forward from that point was its evolution after it crossed the Lesser Antilles Islands. And instead of moving over Hispaniola, which may have very well killed the system forever, preventing it from being a problem in the Bahamas, It moved uh, east of Puerto Rico instead, and if there was a time during the forecast when some major errors were were made in, in some of the modeling that we had, it was during that time when most models had it going west of Puerto Rico instead and taking a different track. Instead, we had this evolution where a tiny center reformed farther north while it was in the Caribbean and took it on a different path that allowed the storm to survive and ultimately become a monster. And some of the rapid intensification we saw, of course, can be hard to anticipate and and may be interpreted as somewhat surprising. But I would also say that we had a pretty good idea that this would be intensifying quickly near the Bahamas. And the extent to which it did so was tragic Um, and uh, a little bit of a surprise that morning for sure. I'll say that. Yeah, 
one of the things you mentioned is that reformation or sort of redevelopment of, of the eye or the eye circulation in a slightly different location. Those little things matter. Uh, they matter from an assessment of track, from an assessment of intensity. And there are a couple of these what I call sort of very small scale relative to the larger scale system uh, processes that really matter. You mentioned that also there was an eyewall replacement cycle, uh, I, I guess, near the Bahamas as, as well that weakened the storm somewhat, but it also broadened the storm in size and in Winfield. Talk about the eyewall replacement cycle and, it, and its impact on Dorian. Yes, I believe we actually had two such replacement cycles, one or both of them following its movement over Grand Bahama. And uh, at that time, the storm was also being influenced by the upwelling of cold water beneath it. So it was sort of an atypical uh, effect on the storm. But those cycles are very, very crucial um, when storms are approaching land. They normally result in a weakening of the maximum winds, as they did in Dorian. Uh, We had a quick drop in the max winds, but the wind field also grew. And that broadening of the storm field uh, can, can bring impacts to a much wider area uh, when we're talking about potential landfall. So we watch for those very carefully. They are still rather unpredictable events. We can see them coming once the signs are there, but we normally can't anticipate them more than six or 12 hours in advance. And uh, that can be very important when storms are approaching. And at this point, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Matt Sitkowski from here at the Weather Channel. Uh, he's one of the uh, senior executives in, that has been involved with the Weather Geeks from the start, television show and podcast. Uh, if you go back and look at some of his uh, dissertation work at the University of Wisconsin, he, he's done some of the most extensive work on eyewall replacement cycles. So I wanted to give Dr. Sitkowski a shout out there. Uh, Levi, what stands out to you the most this season as we move forward? Anything that raises any red flags for you or, oh, we need to watch this? Well, at the moment, signs seem to favor a continuing active period, not only because we're at the climatological peak of the season, but because environmental conditions in the large scale seem to be improving for the Atlantic. The water is a bit warmer than average now than it was a month or two ago, and large scale uh, large scale equatorial waves moving across uh, from west to east across the globe seem to favor uh, rising air in the Atlantic on a large scale as we head forward in the next four to six weeks. And so for the remainder of September and October, we may see these waves coming off of Africa in more favorable environments. We may have one next week that may bear watching and uh, we'll have to keep close tabs on the remainder of the season as it could be a slightly more active period than average. And as a context setter, we're taping this on September 11, 2019. So uh, we'll, 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 whenever this airs, we'll have a sense of uh, how some of these uh, things bear out that, that Levi is talking about. Levi, could you clarify something for me? Because this came up the other day. A reporter actually called me at the University of Georgia and wanted some information on where the hurricane season stands or sits within the context of the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. She wanted to know, are we, are, are we supposedly in an active or quiet phase and could you just explain to the listeners what that is and and how it how it is relevant to what i just asked sure uh the amo atlantic multi-decadal oscillation is basically a, a measure of how warm the north atlantic is in general the ocean temperature and we've been in a so-called warm phase of the amo since about 1995 where the water has generally been warmer than average in the tropics and supported uh greater than average hurricane activity during these last 20 years or so. 
And uh, we remain in a phase where the Atlantic is warm, but we are seeing some changes in recent years where the location of the warm water has shifted and is less now in the deep tropics where storms like to form and a little closer to the mid-latitudes or the subtropics. And that has resulted in some changes in where storms have tended to form in recent years with more of them forming farther north and from different influences. And we may ultimately in the next decade or so head back toward a cold phase of the AMO, which if we're lucky, may give us a period of lesser hurricane activity for the following 20 or 30 years. But as things continue to change and as the climate changes a little bit, uh, how these cycles behave may also change. And we'll have to keep an eye on how things evolve in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've certainly have this sort of anthropogenic climate change signal superimposed on this naturally varying cycle as well. And it often is confusing to people and often gets miscommunicated for various reasons. So I like to make sure when we have an expert like you on that we, we set the proper context. want to pick your brain as an expert. We're talking with Levi Cowan of Tropical Tidbits and graduate student, doctoral student at Florida State University. I believe you're actually a candidate. Uh, I want to make sure I get that correct. Doctoral candidate at Florida State University, which means he essentially has to defend his PhD dissertation and he's done. Uh, what do you think are the biggest forecast challenges ahead and uh, basically and also what, over the last several years as it relates to hurricanes? Well, we've already talked about uh, the communication aspect, which I think is paramount right now. As far as the raw science of it, I think we're continuing to pursue better prediction of rapid intensification events where storms like Hurricane Michael and Hurricane Dorian undergo intense strengthening over a short period of time. Those periods can be hard to anticipate. Uh, Those rapid changes in that can, especially in the case of Dorian and Michael, have significant impacts for land areas uh, if people didn't anticipate that prior to landfall. And uh, some of those events happen under environments that we would normally think of as imperfect for the storm. Hurricane Michael, for instance, had a certain degree of mid-level shear in its environment, which may have prevented intensification in a lot of cases, but in the case of Michael, it did not prevent the storm from intensifying at all. And I think additional research into some of those processes and how to understand them and simulate them better are going to be very important going forward as our models improve and we can hopefully leverage that skill uh, to make better predictions of unexpected changes in storms. Yeah, I I had a student at the University of Georgia did an internship with the National Weather Service, and he looked at that very issue of Hurricane Michael rapidly intensifying, even though it didn't necessarily meet the textbook uh, expectations from a shear perspective in terms of hurricanes typically not liking a lot of wind shear in in the environment. So it was a very interesting uh, discussion that he had with us for his uh, presentation. I want to give you a chance now. You're in an elevator. You're riding up with a senator from Alaska or Florida, and they ask you what your dissertation about. And you mentioned it a little bit, but in a nutshell, if you're on that elevator for a minute or two uh, and that senator asks you, well, what's your dissertation at Florida State about? What would you say? Sure. Well, I'm studying how upper level flow at about commercial jet level impacts hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin specifically. 
And it's important because hurricanes enjoy environments with very little flow aloft, but a lot of uh, the time they are encountering jet streams, upper level troughs, etc. that can have both negative and positive influences on the storm. And I study the climatology of those influences, how to identify them, and how the balance between positive and negative influences can lead to changes in storm intensity. We normally think of wind shear as suppressing a storm, uh, but there are other things going on that can enhance convective activity in the storm, thunderstorm strength, and offset the negative impacts of shear. And understanding when that happens and what kind of flow arrangement around the storm can lead to unexpected intensification while shear is occurring is sort of important. And we just mentioned that with Michael. So uh, that's sort of my focus right now. Very, very interesting. And related to that, I've seen some some research in the peer-reviewed literature that talks about the, the couple of things that I want to get your thoughts on. I've seen some research that suggests that the environments, upper level environments favorable for hurricane development, e.g. E- less wind shear, uh, could become more dominant or prevalent in, in future years. And I've also seen work by Jim Cosin and colleagues at Wisconsin that suggest that these storms are slowing or stalling more frequently, as we saw with Dorian, Florence, or Harvey. What are your thoughts on both of those? Are, are we trending towards an environment, upper level environments more conducive to hurricane strengthening and what are your thoughts on this stalling uh, research that's coming out? Well, it's it's a delicate balance of things. The best you know climate simulations we have, of course, have much uncertainty, but the uh, amplification of warming at higher latitudes suggests that potentially uh, jet stream amplification and slowing may make for stronger troughs and ridges uh, moving across the U.S. and the Atlantic, which on one hand could increase wind shear by dipping down into the tropics farther, but on the other hand, we may also get slower flow. And that may be, I haven't read that paper in some time, but Cosin's work, I believe, referred to a slowing of steering currents that could happen in the future and result in slower storms occurring more often and potentially contributing to larger storm total rainfall in events like Harvey, et cetera. And so that is something that could occur. I would say there's still a lot of uncertainty in the literature about exactly how these changes will manifest because we'll also have warming water and that could facilitate stronger storms at the same time that other influences are trying to suppress them. And the balance between those things I don't think is fully understood just yet. We're talking with Levi Cowan, and he is coming to us from WFLA in Tallahassee, Florida. And we have two final questions that I want to get to with uh, Levi before we get you out of here. First, is there anything coming down the line for your website that we need to know about? Any new products, anything anything new, any changes? Well, there are some uh, products I would like to add for aiding uh, evaluation of storm steering and thermodynamics and moisture in the environment. I unfortunately don't have a lot of time this year to add new things, but I'm always looking for ways to improve the site and I appreciate feedback from my users as well. Absolutely. And yeah, we certainly understand the not time part. You're doing this little thing called a PhD. <laughs> so con- continue on that line first and then worry about those things later would be my advice to you just as a senior member of the field and a, and a professor as well. And then, and what advice do you have for young weather geeks out there that may be listening? Um, any any things that you've learned in your young career so far that you'd pass along to someone younger? Well, I would say I've benefited immensely from taking on a side project like this website I built. And the things I learned in doing that have helped me uh, in an incredible way. And if you're a young meteorologist now, 
you may not be told in undergrad, but if you would like to do research or go to grad school or be a professional in the field, uh, knowing how to program is so important right now. And it's, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, at first, it's difficult, but when you learn how to create things, create plots from data and learn how to visualize the things that you're studying, it's a lot of fun and it's incredibly useful and it's almost universal in meteorology research these days. So I would strongly suggest learning that if not in a class, then on the side, it's well worth your time. Absolutely. I second that strongly. I would also point out with the communication skills and uh, that Levi does through his briefings and whatnot, those are also valuable skills as well. Where, where can people find you? Give us your uh, social media coordinates. Sure. It's uh, Tropical Tidbits on Twitter and Facebook and uh, on YouTube. It's Meridional Jet, or you can just search for my name. Levi, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Shepard, thank you very much. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we want to thank you for listening to this episode of Weather Geeks podcast. Continue to listen, and if you haven't subscribed, go and subscribe at your favorite podcast outlet, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.